everyone, and welcome to New Way, the podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. I'm your host, Sarah Hayden. If you've been listening alongside us in the first few episodes of 2021, you already know that we are dedicating our current season of New Way to life in the wilderness. In his current state, in the face of this twofold calamity, now he becomes an outcast. And he becomes an outcast among other outcasts. He's gone from the dominant position to the most subordinate position. That is to say, his friends have betrayed him. Uh, he's receiving no help from the community. And now he feels alienated and isolated and deprived and despondent. Today, part two of my conversation with Bill Brown on wilderness in the Bible. This time is all about Job, where there is so much to unpack, a calamity, a tidy worldview falling apart. Job's request for God to stand trial as defendant to Job's complaint and the strange creatures God introduces back to Job in response. Let's jump right in. Bill, last week we started talking about Exodus and Job in our conversation, and it strikes me the role that nostalgia plays in both narratives. Uh, It also makes me think of what influence it has on us, the way that individuals and communities can remain tethered to our own past or our own romanticism about what used to be. Yeah, so uh, Job lapses into his own nostalgia before God ever appears. And so in um, chapters 30 and 31, he looks back at his life in his prime, and it's not a time of enslavement, to be sure. It's actually quite the opposite. It's a time in which he was dominant in his community. He longs for the time, again, when he was the king of the hill, but now he is just the lord of an ash heap where he sits. He revels in the honor that he used to have, which uh, made others silenced whenever he stood up to speak. He was the most respected, outstanding community member uh, in his town. And he even likened himself to a king in his community. And so the kind of Job that was is a Job who is not only upright and uptight, but he's also a supremacist. He is a supremacist in his community, and he loved every moment being that. Hmm. And that's what he longs for. That's what he wants to return to. That's what he hopes in his restoration. Is there a particular part of the text where you see that supremacy? Or It's actually in chapter 29. Chapter 29 is all about the way things were Yeah, others listened to me and waited and kept silence for my counsel, verse 21. After I spoke, they did not speak again, and my word dropped upon them like dew. What a guy, man. Verse 25, I chose their way and sat as chief. I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. Now, he does talk about blessing the wretched, causing the widow's heart to sing, I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was the eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I championed the cause of the stranger. So Job prides himself in his charity work. Mm -hmm. But it is a charity work that comes from a position of privilege and dominance. And those around him are the recipients of his good work. I, I call that tyranny of goodness. Hmm. He is a king uh, who is the channel of blessing to everyone else. Everyone depends on Job. 
At least that's the way he wants it to be. Mm -hmm. And in his current state, in the face of this twofold calamity that he is suffering, now he becomes an outcast. And he becomes an outcast among other outcasts. That is to say, he's gone from the dominant position to the most subordinate position. And now he feels alienated and isolated and deprived and despondent. And so when he hits the pit of despair at the very bottom, he, he talks about being a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches there in chapter 30, verse 29. That is to say, his friends have betrayed him. Uh, he's receiving no help from the community. He's alienated and isolated. And so all he has are these jackals and ostriches to be his companions. Now, that's metaphorically, and the background to that is in the prophetic literature, when a city is invaded and destroyed and the survivors are deported, among the ruins, the first wild animals to populate the city are the jackals and the ostriches, according hmm. to Hebrew biblical poetry. And so Job is saying, I am like a destroyed city. I have been ruined. And now these unwelcomed visitors come to populate my world, the jackals and the ostriches. They, they are emblems of utter devastation. And that's how Job feels, having been knocked off his pedestal and now becoming an outcast uh, by himself and what God proves to be an outcast in the wilderness. And so that sets up the wilderness revelation. So then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge and begins God's speech to Job and conjuring these animals to Job. Yeah, God does not come as a fuzzy, warm friend to Job. God does not come on Job's terms. God comes only on God's terms. And that is in this frightening theophany of a whirlwind, which can only strike terror in Job's heart at this point because he knows how his children died. They died because of a whirlwind back in chapter 2. So he is struck with terror by this terrorizing God. And that has been his complaint all along, that God has terrorized him from the very beginning. So, yeah, so God has met Job's expectations by showing up in the way that God shows up. But then things change drastically. God does not exercise God's might to crush Job in a whirlwind. Rather, God addresses Job in a whirlwind of words, both challenging Job and instructing Job, and in the end, bringing Job into a state of sheer wonder and awe about creation and about the one who stands behind creation, God the Creator. And so Job is introduced to things he had never even imagined. It says, if the ash heap upon which Job sits has been turned into sort of a magic carpet and through the power of divine poetry, Job is taken to the farthest reaches of the universe, the heights and depths of creation, its extremities, the dwelling place of light, uh, the storehouses of hail and rain, down to the very depths of Abaddon, the abyss, with Leviathan. And then God sums up all of this 
by sharing 12 animals, all of them wild and free in their own rights. All of them exercise their freedom with God-given dignity. And these are the animals that uh, Job was, one, afraid of, and in many cases, Job held in contempt. They are symbols of chaos in the eyes of Job. Mm -hmm. But these animals are presented in loving detail with great admiration on the part of God. It's as if God is proudly displaying God's own children in these snapshots of these animals, uh, eliciting Job's admiration and uh, perhaps praise. So these animals end up being the key to the whole book of Job, and these animals dwell in the wilderness, not by accident. The wilderness becomes the locus of revelation, the locus of encounter of God's sovereign care over the universe. The language is just amazing. Um, the cosmic language by which God conjures the heavens and the earth to Job, it's one of my favorite accounts about creation and scripture. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Which is such a great line. <laughs> uh, tell me if you have understanding. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. The tenderness, in a way, the activity, the creative activity God displays in fashioning the world together. And there's this cosmic imagery, but then, of course, as you said, God is moving Job into this spotlight. You can just imagine sort of the camera uh, getting closer to this uh, lion or mountain goat. From, you go from the rain and the storehouses of heaven, and then God says at the beginning of 39, Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch to give birth to their offspring and are delivered of their young? I mean, as someone who has given birth, I think like there's some crouching, and it's like God knows what is involved in that for this animal um, who is not giving birth in the middle of a city, but who is far away in the mountains in a remote location. God is seeing this moment in their offspring's life and seeing it not only when they become, but what becomes of them, which I find so very moving. Yes, you're exactly right, Sarah. There's a lot of tenderness as well as challenge in God's answer to Job. On the one hand, God is challenging Job to reorient himself in the wilderness, this place of disorientation, which offers the opportunity for Job's worldview to be entirely reoriented. And part of that new orientation is recognizing that the bursting of life, the flourishing of life, occurs in places that Job had considered to be only a wasteland. But God proves to Job that this wilderness that he held in contempt is actually a place of life in all of its manifold forms, mm -hmm. like the mountain goat giving birth, and then its young getting strong, and then venturing forth never to return. That is the circle of life, if you will, mm -hmm. that God lovingly tells to Job. Uh, it's interesting that the first animal described is the lion, 
God's answer is full of questions and never giving Job really a chance to answer. And when Job is given finally the chance to answer, he refuses to answer because all he can do is keep silence. But with the lion, the question is posed, can you hunt the prey for the lion? That's not the question that Job would have expected, particularly after God had challenged Job to gird up his loins like a combatant. Job expected God to ask, can you kill the lion? Hmm. Uh, Like any mighty king uh, in the ancient Near East. In fact, most of these animals uh, were hunted by the Assyrian and Babylonian and Egyptian kings as part of their ways of proving their prowess on the battlefield. And the lion, of course, was the most prized kill because it was considered the king of beasts. But God says, no, can you provide for the lion? That very question turns Job's worldview on its head. Mm-hmm. And God is inviting Job to think of creation in God's terms. And to think of creation in God's terms is to think of creation in the terms of these animals, each and every one of them. It's as if God is inviting Job to look at the world through the eyes of these animals. Job had this system that he participated in, not only participated in at the beginning that we see recounted, but he also perpetuated and sort of became the standard bearer for the way his community should function. And that was the way. And as he says later on, even after many, many, many wrestling nights in conversation with others, I not only have done everything right, but I have provided the right scenario, the right system. And it just strikes me as amazing that his eyes are becoming opened to the many, many systems that function in the way that they need to in conversation with the land and the air and the sea in which they're embedded. They're not an island like Job is. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Uh, Another way to put it is that Job saw himself as the singular point of reference for the world. (laughs) That's good. As he was for his community as the king on the hill. Mm -hmm. And so what's going on as he comes to know the creatures of creation and all of their glory and beauty and awe verging on terror, he is becoming dismantled. His supremacy is becoming dismantled before his very eyes. Job is seeing the world through the perspectives of these other creatures that he had held in contempt or discounted and would have thought that a good lion is a dead lion, Hmm. a good ostrich is a dead ostrich. And one great example is the onager or the wild ass that's described in chapter 39, verses 5 to 8 in which God asks Job, who has let the wild ass go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift ass to which I have given the steppe for its home and the salt land for its dwelling place? It scorns the tumult of the city. It does not hear the shouts of the driver. Instead, it ranges the mountains as its pasture and it searches after every green thing. So Job is invited to look at the world through the eyes of the onager, and the onager associates chaos with the city, which is where Job is in his own little urban world, and it finds its freedom in the wilderness. It finds its order, its flourishing, its life in the wilderness, in the salt lands. 
And that's exactly where Job sees only chaos and desolation. So the onager presents a flipping of Job's own perspective, his own worldview. Mm -hmm. And that's then just like Israel in the wilderness, the wilderness and God's answer to Job is a place of instruction. Job is being transformed in the way that God redescribes for him the world, the universe, and particularly the wilderness. I have to ask, have you always read Job in this way? Or has there been a shift for you too? You know, in the past, I've always been obsessed with trying to figure out what is going on in chapters one and two. Hmm. I think for most readers of Job, that encapsulates the story. And really, the culmination of the story, the climax, if you will, is when God finally reveals God's self and the world in those concluding chapters, chapters 38 to 41. So it really has been sort of a shift in my own focus as I try to understand the book of Job as a whole. The center of gravity has shifted from the beginning to the ending. And truly, when it comes to any good novel, particularly a detective story or a mystery novel, isn't the ending what is supposed to be most prized? Well, why not in the book of Job as well? Job turns out to be very different from the Job that we find in the first two chapters. And I would also suggest that God turns out to be quite different from the kind of deity that is portrayed in the first two chapters as well. God turns out to be a God who is the creator, who exercises gratuitous care over all of creation, and shows Job that he indeed is a part of that creation as well. He's not to exercise dominance over creation. He's just one among other species coexisting on this world of flourishing that is meant to accommodate all forms of life and to revel in the various perspectives that these animals bear upon Job as God reveals them to Job. The wilderness turns out to be a place of transformation. It's a place of encounter for Job, and it's a place of change. And Job admits to that at the end when he says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Job has been transported into a state of sheer wonder and awe. And what he does with that wonder and awe is left up to the epilogue when he is finally restored to his place of prominence, if not dominance, in the community, to be sure, and with um, a new family. But we find Job acting a little differently. He's not so uptight anymore. He's not obsessed with his children cursing God in their hearts when they hold festival among themselves. Uh, instead, Job is a different kind of father, a different kind of patriarch. He was a patriarchal supremacist back in the day. Now he's sort of an anti-patriarch in the way he treats his family. And it all comes down to the way he treats his three daughters. They remain nameless in the prologue back in chapter one. But with his new children, his daughters are singled out by name, and he shares with them his inheritance, 
which counters biblical convention and law. No, Job gives his daughters the financial wherewithal to exercise their own freedom. They become equal among their brothers. You might say what Job has learned from his experience in the wilderness is how to exercise gender justice within his own family. Hmm. In a way, he has taken something of the wilderness in which all creatures, great and small, are valued by God, and he's taken that part of the wild back into his new family, raising them in a very different way. His supremacy has been dismantled, at least to an extent. Hmm. I wish he would free his slaves. We don't have any indication about that. And one can guess that his reamassing of wealth and property would not have been possible without his slaves. And so Job still has a long ways to go. He still has the task of giving reparations. And we actually have a Deuteronomic stipulation of reparations in Deuteronomy 15, in which the formerly enslaved is not to go empty-handed, but to be supplied with the financial wherewithal to begin his or her freedom in the community. We don't see Job doing that. So Job is still a work in progress. As we whites continue to be a work in progress. I think in the end, the book of Job is about the dismantling of supremacy that leads to gender justice. Now the task needs to be taken towards racial justice and reparations is an indispensable part of that. You know, I identify with Job as I self-identify with my whiteness. I can get where Job is because Job, the figure of Job reveals my own supremacy. And Job's time in the wilderness is a time for many of us to be in the wilderness too. This pandemic wilderness has exposed things that some of us were little aware of, social inequities, economic inequity, our vulnerability uh, experienced in varying ways and in varying degrees in this pandemic wilderness is one thing that should really unite us against a common nefarious foe, which is this virus. But this pandemic has revealed other pandemics as well in such stark terms, poverty, uh, racism. The fact that this capitalistic society of ours exists on an inner contradiction in which the most essential workers are deemed also the most dispensable. That is a contradiction that drives this economy and it is also a contradiction that can ruin this economy. We need reform. We need dignity economically in terms of justice for all, and particularly those who have suffered the most, and that includes communities of color. And this pandemic has revealed even more in more stark terms the pandemic that has lasted over 400 years. And you know, Job speaks to me in this way now today, more forcefully than it ever has before. Thanks be to God for Job and his dismantling and transformation. Thanks be to God for the God who does not give up on Job and reveals the wonders and the dignity and the power and awe of the wilderness and what it can teach us today. Amen. Thank you so much, Bill, uh, for this time, for this perspective that God has given to Job in that whirlwind. Really grateful for this time together. Well, thank you for asking, Sarah. All you need to do is ask, and I'm ready to talk. (laughs) 
Friends, we are back next week with another amazing episode, this time featuring Claudio Garbales, a native of Brazil, a former church planter, and the current professor of worship at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. He is a groundbreaking theologian who has found a way to make our gatherings truly the work of the people. Be sure to click subscribe wherever you found this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Our growing community streams from Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And of course, online at newchurchnewway.org. We are especially grateful for the support of Pittsburgh Theological Seminary in making this episode possible. If you're a pastor or a faith leader who is looking to pivot and are actively engaged in convening a new ministry or serving a church undergoing transformation, you can apply now to the Certificate in Church Planting and Revitalization at PTS. Karen Rohr, our first guest on the podcast this season, heads up this program, which is all about shifting community culture and equipping adaptive leaders. The next cohort begins this coming June, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. Just visit pts.edu slash cp&r for more info. Thanks for listening to New Way, podcast of the 1001 New Worshiping Communities Movement. Our producer is the fabulous Marthame Sanders. You can see stories and photos from the humans who make up this movement on Instagram at 1001NWCPCUSA. Catch you next time.